Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Sojourn Church. Look at y'all. As Pastor, uh, Pastor Edward Hunt would say, come on, church. If I could ask you guys to uh, return to your seats now and uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you uh, don't have your Bible with you here today, go ahead and raise your hand and someone from the back will get one to you here momentarily. Um, and if you don't actually own a Bible, feel free to keep this copy. It is Sojourn's gift to you. So uh, as you know, we are going to begin a sermon series on the book of Philippians today. So our scripture is from, yeah, our scripture is from Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll give you a few seconds to go ahead and find that. And then once you do, if you don't mind standing with me, and I will read aloud and you can follow along. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. So glad to be with you on this first Sunday of fall, and it kind of actually feels like fall today. So glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and whether you've been a part of this church for a really long time, uh, whether you uh, have been a part of it in the past or are here this morning uh, visiting with us, or this is your first time ever coming to Sojourn, or maybe even ever walking into a gathering of the church, uh, we are grateful that God has brought you here today. And I'm excited for us to now uh, spend some time opening up God's Word and just seeing what God has to say to us this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and ask Him to bless this time. Father, we come before you this morning and we're just humbled. We're humbled by the fact that you, the God of all creation, would enable us, a, a finite people, a people who oftentimes don't acknowledge your greatness, don't acknowledge your existence even in our day-to-day -day lives, who rebel against your will and your ways. Father, we're humbled that you've made a way for us to know you. You've made a way for us to be reconciled to you, that you've sent your son to redeem us, to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with you. And then in the midst of that, not just to leave us where we are, but to transform our lives. And so Lord, I'm just struck by that this morning as I look out at this group of people that in your providence have brought to be here this morning. And so Lord, this is not just any ordinary Sunday. Every time we gather together as the church is an opportunity for you to work in us so that you might work through us. And so we pray, Lord, that this wouldn't just be some ordinary Sunday, that we would just kind of go through the motions this morning as we open up your word, as we continue in our gathering together to sing songs to you and about you and to pray and to take communion and just to see one another and be with one another. God, I pray this morning that we would stop just in the moment to reflect on the fact that we're even able to do that today. That's a gift of your grace to us. And so, Lord, I pray that wouldn't escape our thoughts this morning. And I pray that as we come to your word now, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
Not the eloquence of words, not the preparation that's happened this week, not any other song we sing that was written months or years ago, but by the power of your spirit in this moment, God, would you take the truth of your word, the truth of who you are, and implant it in our heads and our hearts and use it not just that we would gain more information this morning, that we would feel puffed up in knowledge, God, but I pray that we would walk out of here just exalting in you, exalting the name of Christ, that you would transform our very lives this morning because we've sat here and been here and got up out of the bed this morning and trekked through the rain to be here today. Father, would you gift us with that? Lord, I just pray that above all that, that we would walk out of here just praising your name for the richness of your grace towards us in Christ. And so we pray that you bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. You know, something I think that all of us from time to time can really appreciate and be thankful for are words of encouragement. And when I say words of encouragement, I don't mean encouragement like when you go into the waiting room of your doctor's office and they have someone a motivational poster up in the wall that you're supposed to read that and feel really encouraged by that. Or when all the things that get passed around on social media and Facebook uh, to try and encourage, whatever kind of quip or, or saying that's posted. I'm not talking about encouragement like that. And those may be encouraging. So if you, if you like sharing those things on Facebook, I'm, that's fine. Uh, but I'm talking about genuine encouragement. And, and genuine encouragement comes when it comes from someone who really knows you. And when I say knows you, knows both the good and the bad of your life. Someone who actually has a relationship with you. And genuine encouragement is more than that person saying to you, hey, good job, or you're great. But someone who comes alongside of you, when we think about encouragement, it's encouraging you to continue to move forward in what is right and good. Encouraging you to stay the course in a way that's honoring to Christ. That's a biblical idea of encouragement. Well, as Freddie just mentioned, and as you've seen even on the slides this morning, today we're jumping into a new sermon series in the life of our church. And we're going to be spending about six months going through the book of Philippians. Now, you may look at the book of Philippians if you have any familiarity with it, or if you flipped open for the very first time in your entire life this morning to this book of the Bible, you can see it's not really long. It's four chapters But we're going to take about five or six months really to slowly go through this book because there's so much goodness, so much encouragement in this book. And really this book is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people. And this group of people would have received this letter as genuine encouragement to them because Paul and the Philippians had a unique relationship with one another that we're going to find out a little bit more about this morning and this is a letter that's, that he's writing to them that is very personal, but really is chocked full of encouragement. And so as we dive into this short but powerful letter this morning, what I, what I don't want us to do is just hear it and, and read it and study it throughout the next few months and just kind of look at it at a distance where we're, we're looking at it academically. We're looking at it to gain information, to try and understand theological truths. I, I want us to remember that as we open up God's Word this morning, that God's Word, the Scriptures that you have in your hand or on your phone or whatever it is that you're looking at right now, is God's living and active Word. God God gifts us this word to understand more about who he is. 
and to understand more about ourselves in relation to who he is. And how you and I can not only have a relationship with the living God of all creation, who's holy and righteous and good and just and magnificent and otherworldly, but how we are to live our lives with him as we've been redeemed and transformed and changed. And so the book of Philippians isn't something we're going through for the sake of gaining more information. My prayer, my hope, the pastors of this church's hope for you is that God would use it to actually transform your life. Because we believe that's what God's word does when we receive it. The pastors of this church decided to jump into this short but rich book of the Bible because as we prayed and thought about what God wanted for our church in this season, we really felt like the Lord was leading us just to encourage the church. There's different people in this room this morning, different people that call sojourn their church that are experiencing all different kinds of things in their life right now. Some of you are dealing with serious suffering and trial and difficulty right now. Some of you are walking through discouraging times in your life. Some of you are feeling anxious or nervous or uncertain. Others of you are on the kind of, kind of the complete opposite side of that right now. And really, as you evaluate your life, you're, you're just kind of, I hope, thankful at least for the blessings of your life. Things are going well for you. Work's good, family's good, relationships are good, and, and things are generally just good for you. But for all of us, intermixed in there is what I think is just a continual temptation for all of us to be tempted towards joylessness in life. Joylessness in life. And I think we're tempted towards joylessness in life most often, not when things are really bad or when things are really good, but when we're just walking through the everyday moments of life. That when you go to work this week, or you're sitting at home with your kids this week, or you're hanging out with some friends, the temptation exists for you to not find joy in the midst of whatever the circumstances of your life might be, whether good or bad. Well, the good news is, in God's providence and kindness, Philippians is a letter that will encourage all of us, no matter where we find ourselves in that spectrum. And I hope encourage us to find joy in the midst of life. And church, I'm really looking forward to beginning this journey with you as we walk through the book of Philippians. So let's go ahead and jump to it and get into God's word this morning. And may God bless us today and every day in the days ahead as we walk through the book of Philippians. As you just heard our text read this morning, it's just two short verses. And these two verses are really just salutations. They're, they're, they're a greeting that Paul gives, and it's very normal, very typical of many of his letters that we find in the New Testament. And in them, Paul gives us some particulars that I think would just be good for us to really kind of just slow down for a minute and understand a bit more about. They're important for us to take note of this morning. In verse 1, if you look at your text, we learn about the who of this letter. Like any typical letter, there's a to, there's a from, uh, and really kind of that, that normal greeting that's given in this letter. So what do we learn here? We learn that this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy, they're stated as the, as the authors of this letter. Now, it's most likely that Paul was the, the true author, the one who dictated this letter, who was writing this letter, uh, but Timothy is a co-labor in ministry with Paul, and it's, it's often thought that the reason it says both Paul and Timothy are writing to them is because Timothy and Paul both had a unique relationship with this group of people, with the Philippians. And I think it'd be helpful for us to have a little background on this church 
and the city this church gathers in. And it's a story that begins back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip to Acts 16. I'm not going to read the whole text here, but try and summarize a bit of what is going on. So even for your future reference, as you're studying God's Word this week, go back and read Acts 16. Paul is, uh, has been commissioned by the church to go out and share the gospel, to go tell people about the good news of Christ, that you can have a relationship with the living God through what Christ has done for you. And so Paul is praying and thinking, okay, God, where do you want us to go? Right now, the whole world is open. Like, we could go anywhere because everybody needs to know about Jesus. And so Paul's thinking, well, I think we're going to go over here. And so he starts to move in that direction. But as we learn in uh, the middle of chapter 16, uh, the spirit of Jesus actually prevents them from going to a particular area that Paul thinks that they should go to. So one night Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia, an area that's uh, now in Greece, modern-day Europe, uh, that this man says, come, come to us, we, we need your help. And so Paul takes that as a sign from the Lord. Okay, Lord, now I know we're not supposed to go to this place, but right now you want us to go to this place called Macedonia because people in Macedonia need to know Jesus. And so Paul and Timothy along with others, go to Macedonia. And the first place they go in Macedonia is a city called Philippi. And Philippi is a, a pretty major city within the Roman Empire. And it's on a major trade route of the Roman Empire. And some commentators and scholars have said the city of Philippi was really an urban political center. An urban political center. Maybe, maybe a lot like the D.C. metro area. And so normally when Paul went into a city, the first place that he went was to a synagogue. Because in a synagogue, he knew at least there's going to be people there that acknowledge the existence of God. I'll start with that. They just don't have the complete story. They believe in Yahweh of the Old Testament, but they don't know that the Savior's come. So I'm going to start with them. But the interesting thing is, when he goes to Philippi, there is no synagogue. There aren't enough people in this city who are seeking to follow the God of even the Old Testament. So Paul goes and he's trying to find people he can share Jesus with. And he finds this group of ladies down by the river. And one of them is given, uh, we're given her name. Her name's Lydia. And Lydia's down there and it says she's a seller of purple cloth. And so really what that means is she's a businesswoman. And, and she's probably really good at her job. And she particularly uh, caters her business towards those who are in the upper class. And so she herself is probably wealthy. And so Paul and Timothy engage Lydia and they share Jesus with Lydia. And Lydia places her faith in Christ and is born again in that moment. And Lydia's excited about that, and she tells her family about that, and her family comes to know Jesus too. And then this little church starts in this big city. They start meeting at Lydia's house. Another reason we know that she probably has some wealth. But in the midst of that, Paul and Timothy are walking, and they're traveling through, and this other scene comes up in Acts 16 where a slave girl is kind of accosting them. She's possessed by a demon and she uh, she's actually is a slave and her owners are using her to make money. But she confesses the reality of that these men are from God and so they rebuke the demon in her. She's freed from this demon and we don't know for sure but it seems like she probably actually is born again as well. She becomes a new creation in Christ. Well, she's not possessed by a demon anymore, and so her captors are upset, and they have Paul and Timothy thrown in jail. So here Paul and Timothy are. They're hanging out in jail in this city that they just got to with this family that's just come to know Jesus. And so they're in jail, but they're singing, and they're rejoicing, and they're probably sharing Jesus with people that they're in jail with. And an earthquake hits the jail, and the gates open in the jail, and the jailer's so freaked out that everybody's going to escape that he gets ready to take his own life because he knows if any prisoners escape— 
then the Roman government will take his life from him. But Paul and Timothy cry out like, hey, hold on, man, we're still here. We're all still hanging out here. There's nothing you need to worry about. Don't harm yourself. The jailer overcome by that. What kind of people who are in jail, when the gates of the jail open, just stay sitting put in the jail? And so he asked this question of them, what must I do to be saved? And they declare the truth of the gospel to them. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And so this jailer is born again. He comes to know Jesus and his family comes to know Jesus as he goes back and shares this with them. And so here we have this new little church in this city made up of this group of people that are all over the place. You've got Lydia and her family who are upper middle class. You've got most likely an orphaned slave girl who has no family but has now been welcomed into God's family. And you have this jailer who's a a blue-collar worker in his family in this little church that started in this big city. It's a church that has humble beginnings. And what brought them together was certainly not their similarities. What brought them together was the gospel of Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? The jailer cries out. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's the same good news that saved Lydia and the same good news that likely saved this orphaned slave girl. Now this church was started in around A.D. 50. And so this letter that we're reading this morning was written about a decade after that to this church. And it's likely that some of these same people are still in this church But like a lot of churches, they go through challenges and life stages. And here this church, 10 years into their existence, is struggling. They're struggling with unity. They're struggling with discouragement. They're struggling with just the basic distractions of life. They're struggling with suffering and they're struggling with selfishness, both individually and as a community. And so Paul's concerned for them because Paul has a deep love for them as he does for many of the churches that he helped plant. And so Paul's writing this letter, and he's writing to encourage them, to encourage them to continue to make progress in their faith, even when things are challenging, even when things are mundane. Well, this letter's a little bit different than some of Paul's other letters that we get in the New Testament. While there's theology in this letter, and some rich theology at that, this is not primarily Paul making a theological argument. He's not seeking to to refute a lot of theology in the midst of this letter. He's writing a personal letter of encouragement. This is a letter of friendship. Now, if you're looking at these two verses, we've just given some background on what's going on and who's writing this and who he's writing it to. So you may think, great, so are we done this morning? Because what else could we possibly get out of these first two verses? I'm glad you asked. Because there's a whole lot more. See, our temptation when we come to this introductory verses in Scripture is to do what I guess a lot of us probably do when we come to the introduction of a book. And what's that? Just skip it, right? Like, if it's in the introduction, it's probably not that important. But we have to understand that this is first and foremost a personal letter that Paul's writing, and his greeting is not a hollow greeting. It has significant meaning for both the Philippians and for us this morning See, if we miss what Paul's saying here in these first two verses, it's like when you uh, DVR one of your favorite TV shows and the DVR doesn't start recording right away. It misses the first minute or two of the show. 
which is really frustrating. But it misses those first one or two minutes of the show, and you kind of, if you miss those first one or two minutes, you actually miss a critical part of what the episode's going to be about. Well, the same thing's true for us this morning. If we skip over what Paul's communicating to us in these two verses, then we miss so much of the foundation he's laying. And that's exactly what he's doing. See, here's the key thing that I believe Paul is laying out for us in these two verses. It's this, the foundation of identity. The foundation of identity. So if you're taking notes this morning, just write that down. The foundation of identity. Identity is about who you are. It's about how you define yourself. And so when you think about identity, about who you are, or at least who you think that you are, your identity Where you find your identity, it really has enormous ramifications on how you live your life. I would go so far as to say that everything that you do, every decision you make, flows out of where you find your identity. And so from the very beginning, what I want to focus our time on this morning is that Paul begins to paint a picture. He begins to lay a foundation of identity that will really root everything else he says in this letter. And he does this in how he refers both to himself and the Philippians. Look at verse 1 again. How does Paul refer to himself and Timothy? He doesn't say, hey, Paul and Timothy, super Christians. Paul and Timothy, awesome leaders. No, he doesn't even call himself an apostle here, which he does in some of the other letters he writes. What does he say? He says they are servants. So foundation of identity, write down servants. Says they're servants. Now, why in the world does Paul identify himself and Timothy in this way when there's lots of other things he could call himself that would be right and good? He, he is an apostle. He calls himself an apostle in other places. Why doesn't he use that term here? Why does he say servant? I think the reason he says that is because he's trying to communicate something to the Philippians. He's trying to communicate something to us, something that he's going to unpack a whole lot more throughout this letter. See, we need to remember and recognize that when any person is redeemed by Christ, that they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. When you're redeemed by Jesus, you're transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. In other words, when Jesus redeems you, everything changes for you. Your life is fundamentally altered at the core of who you are. Your identity changes. And throughout Scripture, there's lots of terms that are given to us about identity. We are called, if we're in Christ, we're called children of God. We're called co-heirs with Christ. In other places, we're even called priests or chosen people. But here, Paul chooses one word to identify himself. He says he's a servant. Now, again, if you're looking at your Scriptures in front of you, there's likely a superscript number or letter next to the word servants in your English translation of the Bible, and if you look down to the bottom of your page, that's always indicating a footnote, and that footnote says, probably in quotes, or slaves. See, the word in the original language is doulos, and what doulos can be translated as is either slave, servant, or bondservant. And there are a variety of meanings to all of those terms, but there's a reason that Paul's using that here, and it's the same thing that he's trying to show us, to make clear to us in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that you are slaves to the one you obey. You are servants to the one you obey. 
And Paul's talking about the issue of who is your master? Who do you listen to? Who do you follow? What Paul does in Romans 6, and by using this term here, is pressing against the false belief that you are the master of your fate, the captain of your own ship. He's pressing against the idea that freedom is found in self-guided individualism, which I think is on steroids in Western society. Real freedom is not found in a false idea of individualism because that doesn't actually exist. Real freedom is found in being rescued and redeemed by Jesus. Because the reality is that every human being, every person in this room, every person that's ever existed or will exist is either a slave to sin or to God. There is no other option. You either serve sin or you serve the living God. So for Paul, he's an apostle, absolutely. He's a disciple of Jesus, of course. He is a teacher and a leader within the church, definitely. But he chooses to begin this letter of encouragement by calling himself a servant of Christ, literally a slave of Jesus. Now here's the even more interesting thing about this. He says that, writing this from a Roman prison cell. He's literally in captivity to someone else, and he's saying, I'm not a slave or a servant of Emperor Nero. No, I'm a slave and I'm a servant of King Jesus. See, Paul is saying just in this one phrase that he doesn't belong to anyone but Christ. And he's not called to obey anyone but Christ. He will not bow down to another Lord or Master. Nothing can hold him back. In fact, he, because he's been captured by Christ, he's actually experiencing true freedom, even though right now his hands and his feet are literally shackled to a wall. The reason Paul says all this is because he wants the Philippians and us to understand something. He wants us to understand who he is in Christ. But he wants us to understand who he is in Christ because he wants the same identity for us. He wants us to embrace that we also, if we are in Christ, are servants and slaves of Jesus. Even as we find ourselves in a hostile world, hostile to the kingdom of God. He wants you to see yourself that way. And so let me ask you this morning, if you're honest, do you consider yourself a servant of Christ? Would you identify yourself as a slave to Jesus? And if you did, how might that shape the way you live your life? How might it shape the way you live your life in relation to God? How might it shape the way you live your life in relation to others? I would say it radically shapes your life because Jesus is giving you direction. Jesus is calling you how to live. Jesus is telling you what it looks like to love others more than you love yourself. Jesus is saying, forget everything else in this world and follow me. When we follow Jesus, when we see ourselves as servants of Christ, we actually experience freedom. We don't have to wonder what life is supposed to look like. We don't have to wonder what we're supposed to be doing God has called us to exalt the name of his son and go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming it to those who don't yet know or believe, to walk in obedience to our king and our savior. So Paul lays this foundation of identity, and he gives us one brick in that foundation, servants. But he also gives us another brick in this foundation of identity by how he refers to the Philippians. Look at verse 1 again. He says, who's he writing to? To all the saints. Write down saints. Saints. 
You have servants and you have saints. But unfortunately in our culture, the word saint has come to mean two things that aren't really helpful or accurate. (laughs) We either, when we hear the word saint, we think of dead religious people who've been made saints by someone, an institution of the church, who are supposedly kind of uber-Christians. Right, like they're like really extra holy and walk really closely with God. And so the word saint is actually a term of exceptionality, meaning that not many people are actually saints. And so now you can drive by many church, even in this area, that's named Saint so-and-so. Or we use the term in what I call kind of a more colloquial way. We're like, oh, Bob, he's a saint. Right? Like we're saying like, oh, Bob, that guy, he's, he's just a really good guy. But what is Paul trying to communicate when he uses this word? Calling the Philippians saints. Well, the word saint means holy one. It means set apart one. So here Paul is using another identity statement. By calling them this, he's encouraging them in who they are and what is most true about them. See, they're not just followers of Jesus. They're not just church members. They're not just good people. They're not merely men or women or children. They're not identified by their jobs or their social status or their material possessions. They are identified as holy ones set apart in Christ. But notice what he also says to them, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi, who are at Philippi. I think an interesting thing for him to say. This week I was texting with Tom, one of our other pastors who was doing liturgy up here this morning, and Tom was out of town on work travel, and we were texting about a few things. And in the midst of that conversation, he made a comment about how the Sojourn family picnic was Saturday, like yesterday. But don't worry, because it wasn't yesterday. It's coming up this coming Saturday. And so I gently, kindly corrected Tom to say, no, it's, it's not this week, it's the next week. And Tom's response to that was, oh man, I don't even know what state I'm in right now. Is that what Paul's doing here? Like, is Paul saying, like, just in case you forgot who you are or where you are, you're in Philippi. Is that what he's trying to do with this? No, what Paul's doing is he's pastoring them this, in this. He's laying this foundation of identity as they struggle with different aspects of life, as they struggle through discouragement and distraction, conflict, suffering, just the everyday normal, mundane parts of life that can wear on us, he's reminding them of who they are no matter where they are. You live in Philippi? Great. But you're not primarily a Philippian. You are saints in Jesus and citizens in his kingdom. Here's the thing, church, the same thing is true for us. If you've been redeemed by Jesus, you are not simply Joe or Sue who lives in Fairfax, Virginia. You are not primarily identified by what you do. You're not primarily identified by where you live. You are Joe or Sue, saint in Christ Jesus who God has placed in a particular place for a particular reason. What's the reason? Why does God have you right now living in Fairfax or Fairfax County? Why does he have you living in and going to school at George Mason University? Why does he have you in the middle school that you're in or the high school you're in or the job that you're in right now? Why? Point one, to be a servant of Jesus. To be a slave of Christ. To follow your master, to do everything that he calls you to do right where he has you right now. Recognizing that he set you apart for that purpose and for that work. But here's where I don't want us just to breeze past a word. 
Saint, again, we talked about this last week a little bit. Saint is, is one of those words that we can kind of be like, okay, like that's, that sounds spiritually spiritual. But what does it really mean for my life? What is it supposed to mean for me? And I, and, and I want to talk about this because I think there's a problem within certain theological circles within the church of which our church is a part of, and that's this. We tend to identify ourselves and others most often not as saints, but as sinners, as sinners. And I hear it so often. But while it's true that even after you come to know Jesus that you will still sin, you'll still struggle with sin, it's not primarily who you are anymore. Paul didn't write here or anywhere else to the sinners at Philippi. No, he calls them saints because that is who they are. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Everything has changed for you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Listen, all of us sin. This isn't saying that you're going to be perfect in this life. All of us sin. And if you've been saved from your sin in this life, you still will struggle with sin. So at some level, okay, sure. Can we say then at some level our identity is still that we are sinners? Maybe. But let me be clear with you this morning. You, if you are in Christ, are no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by your Savior. I really want you to hear me on that this morning. Because I think many of you continue, even if it's only to yourself, to identify and define yourself by your struggles with sin. And so the internal dialogue, the preaching that goes on in your head and your heart is I'm impatient, I'm angry. I'm selfish, I'm a drunkard, I'm lustful, I'm sexually immoral. And you may struggle with all of those things. And if you do, you need to repent of all of those things. To turn away from your sin and turn again to Christ, your Savior. But that's the point. If you are in Christ, you are no longer condemned by your sin. You've been set free from its power. You have a new identity. You are a holy one, set apart, not on your own merit, not on your own righteousness, not because you figured it out or cleaned yourself up, but because Jesus saved you. And it's now Christ who lives within you. You're free from slavery to sin. You've been made a slave of Christ, no longer to be captive to sin, but able to say no to it now. And church, what would it look like in your life? What would it look like in the life of our community if we defined ourselves and others more often as saints than sinners? How would that change the way you encourage one another? How would it change the way you engage one another? And I think there'd be a whole lot more encouragement towards holiness. Saying this is who you are. You're not captive to your sin anymore. Walk in the ways of Jesus. I think there'd be a lot more encouragement towards worship because in that moment when you declare to yourself and to others that you are a saint in Christ, you recognize that it's nothing you've done on your own to make that a reality in your life. And so you fall to your knees singing hallelujah. And Paul, even just in this short greeting, is seeking to remind the Philippians and us what is most fundamentally true of us now because Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he came to do. Everything has changed for you if you're united to him by faith. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. But let me just pause here for a moment 
because maybe you've claimed Christ for a long time. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, and maybe you, you know the answers, you know Bible trivia, you know all the books of the Bible, you serve in the church, maybe you have been or you currently even are a leader within the church. But as you're sitting here listening this morning, and please just hear me on this, that, that this would be the, just the Spirit speaking to you, that you hear this talk of servant and you hear this talk of saint, and you get cognitively at least, okay, I get identity, but for you right now, you have a fake ID. You could pull out the card and you can show it to somebody, but if upon closer investigation, just in within yourself deep down, you realize that this idea of being a servant of Jesus, being a saint in Christ, is completely foreign to your own personal experience. And if that's you this morning, please hear me, friend. You may claim Christ, but Christ may not claim you right now. You can say the words that you believe in Jesus, but if you don't actually know Jesus, then it doesn't mean anything. See, the reality of the gospel, that Christ lived a perfect life on your behalf, that he went to a cross to bear the weight of your sin on his back on the tree, and that he was raised again on the third day to give you life for all eternity, is not something to intellectually assent to. The demons know the gospel. They know Christ did all these things, yet they still stand condemned. Why? Because the issue at hand isn't knowledge. The issue at hand isn't information, it's belief. It's faith, it's giving yourself wholly and completely to Christ, throwing yourself on the mercy of our faithful and holy God and really and truly believing that I have no hope in life or death except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if you've been playing the part of Christian but haven't actually experienced Christ in his saving work, let me implore you this morning to repent. Repent, turn away from your sin. Stop pretending, stop acting like that's true. Stop carrying around a fake ID. Light it on fire and throw it away and come to Jesus today. And listen to me, right now in that moment, what you're feeling, what you're thinking is, I can't do that. What are people gonna think about me? I've said I've been a Christian for a long time. They're going to laugh at me? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to ridicule me? Are they going to be shocked that I, me, would come and say, I don't think I've ever known Jesus? Really? I don't know what it means to be a servant. I don't know what it means to be a saint in Christ. No, if you come and you let us know that, we will rejoice with you. Say, brother, sister, welcome. Praise God that he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear today, this day. So come You who are weary of your sin and shame, come and rest at the feet of your Savior. Not with a fake ID, but with a new identity. If we look back at this text, what we see Paul saying is, he's not just talking to a small group of people, he talks to everybody in this little church. He says to all the saints, and he includes in there the pastors, the elders, the overseers, all synonymous terms, and deacons. This is for everybody. I'm encouraging everybody. I'm reminding everyone that if you're in Christ, that you're called to be a servant and a saint of Christ. He's applying this to everyone. Men, women, elementary students, middle school, high school, college, retired, stay at home, older, younger, younger, homeless, rich, blue collar, white collar, every ethnicity. All these people that make up this little church that Jesus is building. 
all of us brought together as a united family in Christ that maybe at face value don't look like we fit together because of Jesus fit perfectly together. And that leads to the last thing I want to say to us this morning. Maybe even, maybe even the most important thing for us to get this morning, and it's this, about this greeting that Paul, yes, has laid this foundation of identity. He's reminded us of what it means to be a servant of Christ and a slave of Christ. I'm sorry, a a saint in Christ. But these identities have to be attached to something. They have to be rooted in something more significant than ourselves. The idea of being a servant, the idea of being a saint is completely meaningless apart from something bigger and greater than yourself. And Paul makes it crystal clear who that bigger who is. I mean, look back at this text three times in two verses. He says, King Jesus, Christ Jesus, servants of Jesus, saints in Jesus, grace and peace from Jesus. See, the significance of being a servant or saint has to be rooted in Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are a servant of Christ, not because you're less than, but because Christ is more than. You're a saint, not because you're good on your own, but because Christ is perfect and good for you, rescuing you and giving you his righteousness. And man, that's been so refreshing to me this week, just studying this and reading it. Because as I shared even last week, I often struggle with identity and finding my identity in what I do for Jesus instead of in Jesus. So this opening greeting of this phenomenal book has stirred my heart once again to be satisfied in my Jesus, to be secure in my Jesus, to be desperate for Jesus, always Jesus, because he's the only one that should be exalted in my life. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Apart from him, I'm still dead in my sin, but because of him, everything has changed for me, and if you're in Christ, for you. It's from this basis that Paul grounds everything that he is going to say to us in this letter. He exalts the name of Jesus in the book of Philippians. The name of Christ is lifted high from the very beginning to the very end. Paul is rooting who these people are in who Jesus is. It's Jesus who they serve. Not as a self-righteous people, but as a redeemed saints being restored in the image of God our Savior. And so sojourn, our identity also as individuals and as a community must be rooted in Christ because it's from him and him alone that true grace and true peace come. Listen, we live in a world that's still broken. Many of us experience brokenness on a daily basis that we're very aware of it. All of us live in the brokenness of our world and sometimes it just becomes so normal for us we forget it. But in those moments, God has still promised that he is not done with you or this world yet. And one day he will come again and make all things new. But until that day, he calls us to find our identity rooted in Christ as servants of Christ, saints in Christ, and to rejoice in all things, knowing that our Savior still sits on the throne, that he rules and he reigns. As we walk through this sermon series, we've decided to call it Rejoice Because the letter of Philippians has a central theme of joy. And I think the reason for that for the Philippians and really for us and God's providence is that joy is often lacking in those everyday experiences of life. And the reason joy is lacking in your life, the reason joy is lacking in my life is because I forget who I am. And I forget whose I am. 
that I belong to the risen Jesus, that my only hope and, ho- and home is not in this world or these circumstances, no matter how good or bad they might be, but instead I am a servant of Christ. I am a saint in Christ, made alive by and united to Jesus. So church, I want to call us as we walk through this series to rejoice. And rejoicing isn't putting on a, a, a smile and kind of fake it till you make it. No, rejoicing is a deep abiding joy in Christ, knowing that he is the king of all creation. In this letter, Paul wants to encourage and remind the Philippians of this. He wants to remind us of this. He wants to point us once again to our Savior. The pastors of this church wanted to jump into Philippians now because all of us struggle to root our identity in Christ in a fallen and distracting world. We wanted to jump into this book of the Bible right now because I think a lot of us are tempted towards joylessness. My hope is as we journey through this together that we'll learn what it looks like to rejoice in all things and to do so together as a family. Paul has shown us in these opening lines of this letter, though, that it all starts with our identity in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, and you can write this down and journal or pray through it this week or talk in community How do you identify yourself? How do you identify yourself? What's the chief thing you use to explain who you are? Is it a servant of Christ, a saint in Christ? Or does something else dominate how you view yourself? Does something else dominate how you view others in this community? And if you wrestle with this like I do, I'm hopeful for what God's going to do as we journey through Philippians together. May the name of Jesus be exalted, and may we rejoice together in him. Every week as a church, we come to the communion meal together, and we come rejoicing and exalting in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So every time we eat this bread, every time we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim the new covenant promises that Jesus has brought about until he comes again. But let me encourage you this morning, as you come forward to the tables in the front or in the back, as you come to partake of these elements, let me also remind you that you come as a servant and a saint in Christ. This meal is a reminder of your true identity and its spiritual nourishment for your soul to be able to walk in that identity all throughout the week. And next week, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, we will eat this meal again together and we'll be reminded once again because we will need to be reminded once again in the reality that in Christ you're a servant in Christ you're a saint so come forward today and come forward rejoicing in the lavish and constant grace and peace that are available to you in the name of Jesus now if you're not a follower of Christ I just ask you not to come forward this morning to partake of this meal because as we come forward, that is what we're doing. We're identifying ourselves with Jesus. We're we're claiming Christ in that moment and saying my only hope is that Christ is claiming me in this moment, that he died for me. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we just ask you to hang out in your seat. Instead of taking the bread and the cup this morning, we want you to take Jesus. He offers himself to you freely. You don't bring anything to him. You can't bring anything to him. So come as you are to him this morning, just in your seat. Ask God to save you today. And maybe, again, if you've been knowing that you're faking it, you're not really, you don't, haven't really been made new in Christ, then stay in your seat this morning. Don't come forward and just pray. Ask God to save you in this moment. And then let somebody around you know.
so we can journey together with you in that. Love you guys. Thankful for you. And thankful for our Savior who's brought us together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this gift, this time. We give you thanks for the gift of your word this morning. That you, our holy God, has sent your Son to rescue and redeem us. And we are a mess, God. We're a train wreck. God, we need your redeeming grace. We need your love, your lavish everlasting love. We need your long suffering with us and your patience. And so God, I thank you that you give it to us willingly in Christ. And Father, I just thank you for this letter that we're going to walk through. I pray right now that you would use this in a significant way in the life of our church, that you would transform people's lives, that you would wake sleepy Christians up. Father, I pray that you'd use this letter to encourage those who think they've been Christians for a long time, who've claimed the name of Christ for a long time, that you would actually save them through the preaching of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that those right now that are not even sure if you really care, you really exist, would you use this time in your word to draw them to yourself? And Lord, no matter where we find ourselves, help all of us to rejoice in Christ. Lord, this week as we walk out of here, I pray that we would be reminded that as children of God, that we are slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus, and saints in Jesus. May we encourage one another, fan that flame of identity along in, within one another so that we might move along in the ways you've called us to and exalt the name of Christ in everything we do this week for your glory and for the good of others. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your lavish grace. We thank you for Christ our Savior. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.